Acts 17 and verse 31. For God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Coming now, almost ended, examining Paul on Athens. The outreach of Paul into the pagan world, the European pagan world. And uh, he's being judged then by the aristocrats and philosophers of Athens, a group of men called the Areopagus that met on Mars Hill. They were the city's watch committee that had invited him with little possibility of him refusing to go along with them to appear appear before them and to um, explain his teaching that he was teaching there in the marketplace just round the corner. And with enormous courage, he addresses them. He pulls no punches. And then he comes towards the end of his sermon and he tells them that the God that he's been preaching to them is going to judge them. Not very long time ahead. And totally justly. And he's going to judge them by the standards that have been set for the world by the archetypal man. God's great definition of what a man is, the true man, Jesus Christ. So it is not Paul who is going to be judged by them for his beliefs and actions, but they are going to be judged by the God that Paul is preaching to them. First point I want to make is this, that that God is... Our judge is not a popular belief. There are certain words of Jesus that are most misunderstood, and yet they are most quoted. They are from the Sermon on the Mount, and they are the beginning, the opening words of chapter 7. Sermon on the Mount is 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's Gospel. And they are the words, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Everyone knows that. Very, very popular. Now, let's understand that one thing Jesus is not saying is, under no circumstances must you pass any judgment on the behavior or ideas of other people. He's not saying that. Sermon on the Mount is full of judgment. From the very first verse, uh, Jesus explains to us the exclusive values and attitudes uh, and behavior that we are to have. He says, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. Only they are blessed. Blessed are they that mourn for their sins. Blessed are those who are pure in heart. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers. He says things like that. He's passing judgment on other attitudes that contradict that blessed life. They're wrong, he says. And then he goes on and he develops this then in a negative way by um, referring to the behavior of the dominant religious group, about 150 years old they are now, the Pharisees. And he tells them, don't pray like the Pharisees on street corners, praying so that everyone can see, he's a devout man. Don't give like the Pharisees gave, uh, splashing many coins into the great uh, trumpet offerings in the temple, that the rattle could be heard everywhere. Oh, what a generous man he is. And uh, Don't fast like the Pharisees fast. They put ash on their faces so that everyone could see that they were fasting. Don't be like that. 
he says. He passes judgment on them. And then he judges a man who built his house on sand. He built his life on a rotten foundation. And the first big storm that came swept the house away and he and his house were lost. The Sermon on the Mount is full of the judgments of Jesus and we are to be like him. So whatever these words mean, do not judge, they do not mean we are never to evaluate other people. We have to evaluate. We have to evaluate others. We have to evaluate ourselves, don't we? We say to our best friend in the morning, we say, uh, had a good night's sleep. And then she passes judgment on the last eight hours in bed. We evaluate the food. That was, did you enjoy it? We say, was that good? We evaluate the early morning comments of the broadcasters on Radio 4. And uh, the teaching that we get from school teachers and their ability in, to make a subject come alive. And the music that we hear and other drivers on the road, we sound our horns and say, what was a daft thing to do? We had a general election last year in Canada this past week and judgment was passed on political parties and uh, one party was ruled out and another party came in. Our sports, our games are judged by umpires and referees and we judge their judgments. The whole country is judging China just now. And we are saying, is the present government's attitude to a totalitarian state like China, is that going to be helpful or not? Could you imagine a stranger coming to you one day and saying to you, will you marry me? And you thinking, well, I mustn't pass judgment on anyone. And so I'll say, okay then. (laughs) That would be a particularly foolish step to take. It's very important for you to pass informed judgments, wise judgments on behavior and attitudes and beliefs and preaching. We are living in a world where we make a hundred evaluations at least every day and often quite unconsciously. So Jesus isn't saying don't evaluate other people. He's focusing on these words of warnings uh, on people who are censorious and superior and carping in their criticism of other people. He goes on in the next verse, in a very famous verse, where he says, here's a guy, and oh, he can see a little speck in your eye. You've got a speck in your eye, he says. He's got a plank of wood, a beam of wood sticking out of his eye, and he can't see that, but he he can see tiny things wrong in your life. Jesus is warning about a critical spirit that exonerates oneself always and passes judgment on other people. He's warning us about developing a spirit that lets nothing go. And always he's saying, do you know what they did? Do you know what she did? And Jesus says, you are going to be judged for that attitude of yours. I'm saying we can't help making judgments all the time. We live in a world of evaluation. We, we are made in the image of God, all of you. Those of you who don't believe in God... Um, 
we believe that you are made in the likeness and image of God. It's been warped and twisted by the fall of our father Adam and by your own, your own sins, but you are still. You have a conscience and you see the glory of God in the world around us and you are commended when you do what's right and so on. And you're like God. So when God, Genesis 1, when he makes the world, he makes, oh, the firmament, and he makes the dry land and the seas, and he makes the sun and the moon, and he makes the stars, and he makes the vegetable world, and the birds, and the fishes, and he makes animals, and he makes man. Every step, he says, it is good. It is good. And when he made man and finished the work of creation, he said, it's very good. He passed judgment on what he'd made. And you know, if you are artistic in any way, if you compose or if you paint or if you write, you pass judgment on what you have done. Our judgments should be in harmony with the God of beauty, the God of truth, the God of holiness and purity. His judgments are always straight and right. He brings every fact into consideration. Our judgments have to be fair. In other words, find out about a person. Find out why they said what they did, why they acted as they did. Put people in the best light. Don't be quick to condemn others. Don't be afraid to evaluate Don't be bought by the smiles of people to lower your standards or intimidated by their frowns to lower your standards. You've got to say, is this true? Is it good? Is it necessary? Is it helpful to say things like that, to to act in, in those ways? So I'm saying this was my first point then that... Um, It's not popular, it's not liked to say that we live in a world in which we answer to our creator for our lives, that God gives such nobility to every person made in his image that we must answer to him for how we've lived. Second thing I want to say is, as all things are to be evaluated, where they're good or bad, or true or false, our lives certainly are to be evaluated. If we judge little things, then suddenly great things, like the way we hurt other people or destroy other people, our Creator is going to judge them. The one in whom we all live and move. Our breath is in his hands, the beating of our heart, the coursing of blood through our veins, the electrical activity in our brains. It's all sustained by God. And the idea that God is going to evaluate us is right through the Bible. It's an important Old Testament theme. And then... uh, It's an important New Testament theme, too. And, you see, it's the heart of the gospel. What is the cross? 
Well, the cross of Jesus Christ is him taking the condemnation, the judgment of God for the follies and errors and absences and sins of our lives. He takes their guilt on the cross. He becomes the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He died for our sins, according to the scripture. The condemnation that you and I deserve fell on him. And with his stripes, we're, we're healed. We're ransomed and restored. And we're forgiven. So the message of hope and salvation has as its foundation the, the justice of God, the righteousness, the judgment of Almighty God. What I'm going to do now is going to draw your attention to um, a number of verses in the Bible which uh, open up the theme of the coming judgment of God. I want you to see how central it is and how strongly it is declared in the Bible. I want you to have no doubts at all that this isn't some hobby that Jeff Thomas is writing today, but that I am simply serving the Word of God and serving the God of the Word by bringing this message to you. I'm saying to you, we're, we're facing a denouement in this moral universe in which we live. It, it ends. Then, not in a rotting corpse not in a tale of sound and fury and signifying nothing at all, but our lives matter. And they have a definition of what a life is that God gives. And we're going to be evaluated. We're going to be judged. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, some verses. Psalm 96. Here's the idea that God is going to judge the world. The whole psalm is a call to worship. I begin uh, the Sunday night service. I help us in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. It's in the, the psalms there. It's a summons to creatures to bow before their creator and for the redeemed to, to worship their redeemer. And it concludes with the words sing for joy before the Lord because he's coming. He's coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and his peoples in faithfulness. He's coming to judge, sing for joy. It's a standard Old Testament refrain. Christians have experienced uh, their parents being murdered, their children violated and killed, their wives raped and murdered, their houses burned to the ground. Last week, their whole lives are desolate. The men who did such dastardly things are walking around. They're quite free. They're never caught, never will be, never convicted, never punished for what they did. But there are Christians then who are grieved by that, but they say, sing for joy before the Lord because he is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and his peoples in faithfulness. God will put things right. He will do that. He will render to every man according to his deeds. It's an Old Testament hope. 
Secondly, here it is on the lips of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 11 and verse 4. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth and with a breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. It's the same hope then that the prophet's heart filled with the spirit of Jesus Christ that God will put things right. Those refugees in their millions fleeing from Syria and Afghanistan, the poor, the afflicted, who've lost everything, terribly mistreated, disdained by the world which hates them, ripped off, drowning in the Mediterranean, packed into wooden hulks and overcrowded inflatables. God will vindicate them. He will settle the accounts. He will justly deal with wickedness. It's the great hope of the Old Testament. So Paul, the Jew, with that background, speaks to these Greeks in Athens about the living God. He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. It's an Old Testament hope. And it may be the only hope some people have now who've lost everyone and everything and are by themselves in a strange country in borrowed clothes, given clothes, and they will never get back what they lost. And they will be vindicated one day. And their murderers will answer to God, the living God, the God of the Scriptures, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what happens in this life, God has the last word. And thirdly, when we come to the New Testament, then the hope of God judging the whole of mankind and righteously is set out and is homes in, centers upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 7 and uh, verses 22 and 23. Jesus says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. You know what he's saying? You see what he's saying to his disciples. The son of the carpenter in Nazareth and Mary's boy child. He's claiming one day he is going to judge the world. And the criterion for passing his judgment on all the world is whether they knew him or did not know him. Now, those are the words of a fanatic. Those are the words of a megalomaniac. If they are not the words of God the Son, I'm going to be the judge of the world. 4.3 in Matthew 25 and verse 31, Jehovah Jesus makes this claim again, when the Son of man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And not just sit and reign and be admired and praised by angels and archangels and the spirits of just men made perfect. But he is sitting on the throne of judgment, to pass judgment on the world. He will assume the position of the justice of the supreme court of the cosmos and uh, he will judge all the people that he's blessed and helped and sustained to whom he's shown so much patience 
He'll evaluate. He'll assess. The Son of God will come and all his holy angels. And he'll sit on his glorious throne. Fifthly, in Acts 10.42, Peter. Well, uh, we all agree. The greatest of the twelve that followed Jesus was Peter. Who knew him and was restored by him and commissioned with him. And in Acts 10.42, he is speaking of his Lord. And he says, he ordered us to preach to the people. And solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as the judge of the living and the dead. That's our message. He ordered us to preach and to testify, like I am to testify this to you, that Jesus has been appointed by God as the judge of the living and the dead. That's what the word tells us. So God's judgment then is through the focus, the, the pipe, the center, the heart of his judgment comes to us through Jesus Christ. He set him on the throne of the universe and he will pass judgment. The one who said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, woe to you. The burdens you put on others and you don't carry them yourself, woe to you. You whitewashed sepulchres. You, you're a den of snakes. Woe to you. Sixthly, we come to Paul in our text. I'm going through the scriptures in uh, the order that the books are found in the Bible. That's why I pick him up now. Isaiah, uh, the psalmist speak of judgment. Jesus speaks of judgment. Jesus tells Peter and the rest of us to preach on his judgment. And then, here's Paul then. He uh, mustn't have one original thought when he stands before the Areopagus. He mustn't modify or compromise anything. He has to teach all the things that Jesus has taught him. That's it. Live or die. That's it. And so he says in our text, Acts 17 and 31, God has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness. Now that's sheer Old Testament. Paul's a Jew. And he's been molded then to think like that. But the rest of the sentence is uh, specifically New Testament, isn't it? It's Jehovah Jesus speaking. He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. So God has put a man, a, a wonderfully sympathetic man, a man who will take every factor into consideration, who knows all the circumstances, who knows the pressures we were under when we said the daftest things and hurt people and did cruel things to people we loved, the people who depended on us when we were just like that. And he will know he was under pressure from his brothers and sisters who didn't believe in him until his resurrection. And... Uh, God has appointed that the judgment will be before this man, Jesus Christ. You say to me, well, you are always talking, you preachers. I don't know how many you hear. You preachers are 
always going on about judgment. I don't think we are. I don't. I've never heard thought for the day at quarter to eight in the mornings talking about a day of judgment lies before everybody in the UK. I've never heard a bishop saying that. Who knows, you say? Who knows if this is, this is just your own idea, your own misinterpretation of the Bible? Well, I'm saying to you, you can be sure for this one reason. That there was once a man who was put to death for blasphemy and being a liar. But we know he was being the Lamb of God. Who was propitiating the holy anger of God towards all that's mean and disdainful and tawdry and dirty. On the third day, God raised him from the dead. And by many infallible proofs, then, he was seen. And people's lives were changed. And for 40 days, then, he was with them in all sorts of circumstances. and They became brave who were once cowards. And they took that message of the living Christ everywhere. His resurrection from... The dead is a proof that whatever he says and what he says about judgment is true. From his lips we're going to receive our destinies, our places with the sheep or with the goats. That's what he says. And every Christian believes Jesus. We believe him. We are his disciples. He's God. Uh, Psalm 3, Romans 2 and verse 16, Paul is meditating on that truth. He says, on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. There will be no secrets on that day. Oh, what secrets? We all have our secrets. Oh, Oh, I'm glad you don't know my heart. I'm glad you don't know my past. I have secrets, and I want to take them to the grave with me, but on that day, there'll be no secrets. All will be uncovered, unveiled, and judged with scrupulous fairness. On the last day, the secret things of our hearts, the secret things of our lives, are going to be uncovered. In the judgment of Jesus Christ. His judgment. Our dear compassionate Savior. Eighth. First Corinthians 4 and verse 5. Wait until the Lord comes. Who will both bring to light. The things hidden in the darkness. And. Disclose. The motives. Of. Men's hearts. Not only will he uncover things hidden in the darkness, no secrets, we've said that, but now he will uncover our motives for what we did. We fooled our wives, our husbands. We fooled our children. We fooled our congregation, our friends. Can't fool God. Did you preach of my glory? Did you preach out of love for me? 
Did you preach with love for those people listening to you? God will say to preachers in that day. Sometimes it causes me to tremble. Tremble, tremble. So when we consider then this theme of the judgment of God, there's a moral motive. There's an ethical motive for considering it. That it produces a a broken heart. And new repentance. Personal repentance. Gospel repentance. That has to be one of its responses. The thought that my heart and my motivation is will be uncovered. I don't know my own heart, really. I know lots about it, but I don't know it. God knows my heart. It's unsettling. Apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ, it provokes me to repentance. So, the Lord Jesus um, often brought up this theme of the judgment of God to his disciples. And he did so to strengthen their resolution to do battle with sin. That's why he did it. To help them to mortify remaining sin. That's why he spoke on this theme. Ninth three. Well, it's the most familiar verse of all. You all know this verse. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10 We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in his body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Second Corinthians 5.10, there it is, there it is. The preacher of grace said it, he wrote it. The preacher of the mercy of God. He said, there's going to be a judgment, and we put himself, solidarity with the congregation, that he was writing to all of Corinth and him, we must all appear before the judgment seat of, of Christ. And the judgment will be by, of, of our lives, of our works, of our Mondays, of our homes, of our relationships, of our time, of our energy. Now that is not a contradiction that salvation is is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. It's an elucidation of what being saved by uh, grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, does what it achieves for everyone who has faith alone in Christ alone, by grace alone. And it changes us. It makes us zealous to do good works. The works that God has prepared before eternity for us to do. If the Lord said to you, uh, what evidence is there that you really trust in the grace of Christ for salvation? What marks are in your life now? You say you're a Christian. What, 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 what evidences in, in, in your life support that claim what would you say 
I read to you Matthew 24, the great humanitarian parable, uh, where he commends things like lonely people were visited and sick people were helped and prisoners, for Jesus' sake, they, they were helped and the, they were given clothes and they were given food to eat. A life of faithfulness. That characterizes then your new life in Christ. You're not serving him with a lip and with the profession, but you're serving him with the energy and strength that God gives to you. So you be ready in, in, for the day of evaluation um, through being faithful to your master, being uh, busy in his work, uh, longing for a closer communion with him, Staying to the end. Um, That we prefer fellowship with Jesus Christ to the sweetest enjoyments that this world can offer. We turn unfilled to him again. Again, 10.3, 2 Timothy 4 verse 1. Paul to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom. There it is. It's uh, in passing he mentions that. I I charge you in the name of Christ, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, who is the judge of the world. He's the lamb of God. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the dove. He's the eagle. And then, 11th, James, the half-brother of our Lord, chapter 5 of his letter. You notice here now, James 5, 9. Don't complain. Don't whinge. Don't be just pointing your finger at other people in your family and members of the church, and you're complaining complaining about the pastor, complaining about the elders and the deacons and the women and the men and the children's behavior. Don't complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. This is typical, isn't it, of uh, New Testament teaching how the greatest doctrines, the incarnation of Christ, the humbling of Christ to teach two women to to get on with one another in a church at Philippi. The giving of of Jesus Christ uh, himself to encourage us to give to the work of the Lord, give ourselves and our substance. And so here is a, a spirit of carping criticism in the church. And he says, uh, don't complain. Don't complain, brethren so that you yourselves may not be judged. (laughs) The judge is standing right at the door. And then there's the famous verse in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27. It is appointed unto men once to die, and after death the judgment. There it is. It's, It's the great theme, isn't it? Well, yes, I've got a few minutes. Let me just open that up. Are Christians going to meet their judge? Yes. All right. How are we going to meet our judge? 
I'll tell you a story from the Old Testament that you all know. It's a story about King Solomon. And he was trying different people with cases who came to him. Two women came to him. Two harlots came to him. And um, they were both claiming that the baby was their baby. And not belonging to the other woman. So you remember what Solomon did. Solomon said, bring a a sword, please, and cut the baby in half, and give one woman half, and give the other woman the other half. And you know what happened. The true mother cried out, Oh my Lord, give her the child! By no means kill him! And Solomon responded to that outburst by saying, Give that woman the child, for she is its mother. Now what was Solomon looking for? Well, he wasn't looking for some action that would earn the child. He was looking for a deed that would prove that the child was already hers, born of her, nurtured by her for a little while. And that is the way that God looks at our deeds. He's not looking for deeds that will purchase heaven and its glories and eternal life by something that we've done that we cared for someone and that we gave our lives for someone and so on. He's looking for deeds that prove that we are already enjoying forgiveness and pardon and the gift of God and mercy through Jesus Christ. We turn the other cheek because Christ is in us. Christ dead in our place. We overcome evil with good because that's how Jesus dealt with the evil that we've, we've done. He gave his life for us. He overcame our evil by being so good to us. And that means that's how we live. We just have to all the time pardon and forgive people who, who hurt us. So we're not afraid of the day of judgment because the judge is the saviour who died for us. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us. All, All our iniquity on him was laid. And he's going to be the one who's going to pass judgment on us in that day. And the day of judgment is really for Well, noticing publicly, heavenly, before God, humble Christian women who spent their lives serving, giving their lives, caring, washing, cleaning, Going to church on Sundays, asking God to help them, praying for their families and their loved ones. Who'd hate to do anything publicly. Whose greatest shame would be to faint in a, in a morning service and draw attention to themselves. Sweet, godly women and men. And the God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. God will honor them. They'll be up there at the, at the throne They'd be up there near the front in the light. And we'd be content to sit in the shadows in the back somewhere. Lastly, number 13, this is okay. And then I've finished going through scriptures. You've been patient. 
but it's such an important subject, isn't it? Revelation 20, a description of the day of judgment. God breathed. Verses 11 to 15, five verses that describe for us the day of judgment. What lies before us? Soon. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they'd done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All right? There are um, over 300 passages in the New Testament that refer to the Day of Judgment. And I've quoted 13 to you today. As though God knows how cool we are and how we quickly forget things that we find inconvenient, things we can't stomach easily. I'm not employing scare tactics or talking about fantasies. I'm just uh, presenting you with ultimate reality. There's a day of judgment. And Paul wouldn't have been a loving man and a faithful man if he'd faced those men on the Areopagus and had failed to tell them and to warn them that it is appointed unto them each to die and not reincarnation, but afterwards evaluation, judgment. And though they might be aristocrats with blue blood, and though they might be mensa high IQs in their intelligent, there's no escape. It's coming. It is coming. The judge is standing at the door. He's warning you. That's why he's brought you here. That's why he's given me this message to give to you. You need a saviour. You need a mediator between you and God. An advocate who will say, they love me. They lived in Aberystwyth and I helped them. And they weren't ashamed of the gospel. And they served me. And... Every time they fell, they came to me and they said, sorry, we've been poor again. And we always forgave them. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Come, my beloved brethren, he will say, into the place that I prepared for you. We're going to meet again, all of us, before the throne of judgment. There'll be no one missing at all. I'll be there. You'll be there. Oh, be with me among the sheep. Don't be Mr. Cool. Be a humble person. Face up to yourself. And go to the good shepherd and say, make me one of your sheep. 
Ask him. Ask him to make you a lamb of God. He'll hold you in his arms. He'll keep you through the life. And he'll say, welcome in that great day. We'll meet. Oh, let's meet on the right side of Christ. Let's pray. Bless your word, Lord. Send the Spirit upon the word. Thank you that this world won't end in sound and fury, a a deserted, cold, volcanic rock spinning through an endless cosmos. But it's going to end before the throne of God with the angels and all the people of God gathered there and a new heavens and a new earth and a a new world. Oh, give us 100% more faith than we have already to believe. And the little bit of saving faith we have, we get it into a little atom and we put it in your hand and we'd say, I do believe, help thou my unbelief. And we'd start to follow you for we long for a judgment of vindication and welcome in that great day and strength to serve thee in these days. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.